Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about some bizarre alien stories. And, uh, yeah, I'm not exaggerating. They're weird. The second one, really weird. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right, these shout-outs go out to the patrons. The patrons are the ones that make this show possible, so please don't skip ahead. It takes, like, maybe a minute, if that... The patrons. You can head over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac if you want to join, but the patrons are the ones that are making this show happen. Without them, I would do far fewer shows. In fact, I might average one show a month, if that, if it wasn't for the patrons who are helping me out, getting me the equipment, getting me the stuff that I can do, that I need to do this show. So again, thank you so much, patrons. Shoutouts going out to Dustin and Matthew, Alicia, Derek, Becca, Josh, Alexis. Hey, Alexis, stay safe. Jen, Elizabeth, Voidtech, Steve, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Damien and Daniel, Ian, Eric, Brandon, Jen, Alexandra, Simon, Eek, George, Connie, Seth, Christine, Jason, Hayden, Cindy, Kim, Adam, Ashley, Fran, what's that? Ian, Carrie, Ezram, Robin, Will, Jim, Kelly, Lord and Phil Mangano, congrats on the new house, Russell, Tanya, Donald, Chris, Brandon, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, and Isaac, Cindy, Bob, Sean, Bishop, I miss you, buddy, Cole, Ah Monsters, Paula, Alicia, Jerry, Leo, Austin, Lindsay, Han, Jennifer, Megan, Aaron, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Lauren McCune, hey, howdy, hi, Lily, Veronica, Nick, Autumn, J. Mark, Carolyn, Martin, Darth Pikachu, I like Darth Pikachu, Jade, Nanashi, Megan, Heidi, Kira, Pablo, Chuck, Laura, Ruth, oh, hey, howdy, hi, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah, Hendrickson, Juliana, Dan, Laura, and GamerFan, with a special shout-out to Joe Teague, and also a special shout-out to all my Texas paramaniacs. Please stay safe, stay warm out there. Holy crap, to all of my paramaniacs, to anybody listening right now, please stay safe. It is a crazy time right now, with not just the pandemic, the Blythe, whatever you want to call it, but the freaking weather it's it's killer out there it's insane please stay safe i'm i'm so worried about all of you um i said it on the live episode i'll say it here right now please let me know i, I if there's any way i can help i don't know how i can help i don't have any money to send you guys but let me know if i can help you guys get the word out about something or anything because i'm really worried about you guys also on the pandemic side of things hey guys I know I've hit a wall. I know you've hit a wall. I'm so tired of the staying at home and not going out and wearing a mask and all that fun stuff. But we're getting to the end of it. The vaccinations are right around the corner. Some of you might have even already gotten your either first or second shot for your vaccination. Please go out and get the vaccinations. But I know. I get it. I want to go out and hang out with my friends. I want to see my friends. I want to go to a bar. I want to go to a haunted location. Trust me, I'm right there with you, but 
Now's the time to stay straight, stay safe, stay strong, stay at home. Don't risk your life. We're so close to the finish line of getting that vaccination. So for all you listening, please just stay safe. We need every one of you. I know I do. All righty. With that, let's get into paranormal news. Uh Uh-oh, which button is it? Is it this one? Paranormal news. Sure, it's that one. Okay, the first story in paranormal news will not load, so it's going to be a good one. Really? Something went wrong. Please try again. I would love to please try again. Where's the story? Oh, this is going to be a fun one. Okay, let me search for the news story again. It was working just a second ago. Wow, that story is been it's been pulled from National Geographic. Fine, I'll go to the next one. It's about the Dietloff incident. And if you guys don't know what the Dietloff incident is, I did an episode about it. It's a very bizarre story. It's uh the the story of uh, Russian adventurers who mysteriously froze to death, seemed to have been ripped apart or torn apart or had their camp shredded. Was it aliens? Was it uh, Bigfoot? Was it Yeti? Was it something paranormal? They don't know. Well, what has been known as the Dietloff Pass incident has prompted many conspiracy theories, some of which I just said. Uh, like, uh, must have been aliens that made the Russians flee to an icy death, um, or Yeti, or, you know, something even weirder. But 60 years later, scientists say they now have new evidence to back up a claim, kind of, a twisty claim, The killer was probably a peculiar kind of avalanche. Now, that was one of the theories that I talked about in the episode. There was some evidence of an avalanche, but this is saying it was a peculiar kind of avalanche inspired by previous work that modeled realistic snow for the Disney film Frozen. Researchers simulated how a relatively tiny avalanche could have struck the camp, forcing them to flee and severely injuring some. I still don't know about the whole, well, I'll keep, I'll keep going. Sometime before the nightfall on February 1st, 1959, skiers had made a simple camp, just one tent into which they all crammed inside, side by side to sleep. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing. If you want to hear the, the story of the Diet Loft Pass, you have to listen to that episode. So let me skip ahead. Scientist John Guam and Alexander Buzrin who laid out their theory for the Dietloff Pass incident today in the journal Communications, Earth, and Environment, argue it's known as a delayed slab avalanche. When the first year, when the year's first snow falls, it comes into contact with the ground that's still relatively warm, but the air temperature has fallen dramatically, creating a temperature gradient that builds a porous crystalline material known as a weak layer that's 80% air. On top of this, more snow falls, forming a denser slab. Think of it like a parking garage with a weak layer between the parking spaces and the sparse pillars, lots of airy space. Okay, sure. Then they said, boom, it happens. A slab avalanche gets triggered. It goes sliding down the hill. They actually have a little uh, demonstration about how a little tiny snowman gets trapped underneath or in front of whatever you want to call this avalanche. They theorized that the cross-country skiers had actually pitched camp on a small step into the hillside, scooping away the snow to level it out. When they cut it out into the snowpack, they sliced through the weak layer, basically dooming themselves. It was a countdown. When when they, I'm not going to go into it. They say when you cut into it, it starts a countdown. Um, It hung there for a while, 
And then they said that given the camper's times of death before crashing through the tent, it's a very unlikely rare occurrence, but there are cases when you throw explosives into a slope to trigger, trigger an avalanche, and then actually the avalanche releases, let's say a half hour later. So they cut into this snow, we're camping, everybody's all hunky-dory, happy and fun, and the countdown went off and boom, the avalanche started going down it. They call it a catabatic wind? I don't know. And it's uh, basically, it means to go down. And these winds did exactly that. Pulled by gravity, they descended rapidly from the tops of the hills, dumping it on these people. And then it just kept going. Because it was so thin, they just it kept going past them, which is why they think that that's why they, they saw some people just like kind of laying out there without really being covered by snow. Like normally when an avalanche hits you, you're covered under feet of snow. This isn't that same kind of thing it kind of deposited and kept going. It was quick, it was fast, and it went over them. So they concluded that the mountaineers survived the initial crush of snow, cutting their way out of the tent, although some of them were seriously injured. But if they escaped a relatively small avalanche, why would they flee over a half a mile away instead of sticking around to dig out their supplies, especially their boots? Well, they found that the group had actually stashed another set of supplies in the forest, I've never heard this before. So perhaps they'd set out for them in a panic. You start to cut yourself out from inside of a tent. You get out. You see there was an avalanche. You see there might be a second avalanche. So they may have to decide the best option would probably be to go into the forest, make a fire, and try to find the supplies. But clad in very little clothing, they didn't survive more than a few hours in the cold. They had no way to know the way that this slab avalanche would have worked and that they would have been safe to dig out their supplies right then and there. It wasn't a typical avalanche. Uh, back in 1959, investigators had a little bit more, had more limited understanding of how avalanches work and didn't realize these right conditions. Is it a theory? Yes, it is. There is no way to absolutely know because there was no eyewitnesses. They said, I don't want to, I want to be clear. We do not claim that we solved the mystery. We don't know what happened. It's Russian lore. This is our best scientific theory as to what could have happened. All righty, speaking of Diet Love Pass, let's move on to the next one because it's kind of connected. Tourists go missing while visiting area of mysterious Russian hiking incident. That's right. A group of tourists have vanished in the Russian mountains near the Diet Love Pass itself. Oh, that's loud. They were supposed to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning, but they had not returned yet, and there is no contact with them. They don't know what happened to these people. Let me turn off that notification so that doesn't keep happening. They said the tourists had traveled to the area to pay their respects to the victims who died there in February of 1959. But those people have disappeared. That's right. The end of the story is they don't know where these people are. But... Uh, more missing people around the same area. Was it another one of those tiny weird avalanches? Or was it something else? Was it something? That wasn't very loud. Hold on. Was it something? Mysterious. Yeah, I like that one better. Alrighty, moving on to the next one in paranormal news. This is a big one. This is a really big one. Roswell Crash. 
Pentagon admits testing wreckage from UFO crashes. I'm telling you, man, it's disclosure time. This is it. The Pentagon has finally admitted to testing wreckage of UFO crashes, according to author Anthony Bragalia, who wrote to the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency. The DIA report released 154-page tests page test results of a mysterious memory metal called nitinol or nitinol. I'm assuming it's nitinol, which remembers its original shape when folded. Now, if you guys know anything about the um, Roswell crash, that's exactly the description of the material that the farmer found. He said, or rancher, not farmer, rancher found. He said that you could crumble it up. It was like tinfoil. It was really light, insanely light. You could crumble it up and would go right back into shape. Well, a stunning admission by the U.S. government that it possesses UFO debris was actually made in response to a Freedom of Information Act request filed over three years ago by Bragalia, adding that in a reply letter, the U.S. Defense Agency has ended decades of speculation by verifying that UFO materials have indeed been recovered. Now, officially referred to as UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, other than UFOs, in case you guys didn't know that, some of this material was placed with a defense contractor for analysis and storage in specialized facilities. Incredibly, part of the information released discusses material with the shape recovery property, much like the memory metal debris found fallen at the Roswell site in 1947, like I just said. Based on these documentations, it appears that the retrieved debris exhibits other extraordinary capabilities. In addition to remembering the original form when Venter crushed, some of these futuristic materials have the potential to make things invisible. They actually compress electromagnetic energy and may even slow down the speed of light. I know, it's a bizarre story. If this is true, if this is a true story, if this can be confirmed that it came from the Freedom of Information Act, this is proof. This is proof of not only that Roswell was really a UFO crash, like we all know it was, but proof that we have had UFO material. The government, U.S. government, has had UFO materials and bodies since 1947. They say, although much of the report's details are redacted, what can be gleaned is that these technologies represent a literal quantum leap beyond the properties of all existing materials known to man. Throughout the received Freedom of Information Act, uh, Freedom of Information Act documents, mention is made of potential use of some of the materials in advanced aerospace platforms. References made to desired material characteristics, such as being extremely lightweight and tough. Uh, blah blah blah, like that. Da, 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 da. Is there anything else? The CA allows documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's about it. That's about it. This story. But hey, that's that's more than enough. I mean, that is a shit ton of information that has just been confirmed. I'm telling you, disclosure, I've been saying it for a while. I'll keep on saying it. It's real. It's happening. UFOs are real. And again, you know, to all those people that would make fun of me when I was a kid or an adult saying that UFOs aren't real. Um, yeah, this isn't me going to ufosareal.com. These are news stories with documents from the U.S. government. All righty, let's lighten it up for a little bit and move on to the next story in paranormal news. A mystery monolith. Remember those mystery monoliths that everybody was like, who the hell are making these monoliths? Well, a mystery monolith appeared in the Congo 
But the mob said, oh, no, 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 and became an angry mob that actually swarmed the monolith and destroyed it. Yeah, they don't take kindly to monoliths in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, apparently. They said over the weekend, a 12-foot-tall metallic monolith became the talk of town rather quickly. It, uh, again, immediately became, well, look at this, and take some photos of it. But then the angry mob flocked to the, pol- flocked to the peace. They took some pictures of it. And then they said that uh, rumors started that it suggested it was some sort of nefarious origin, something evil. In addition to the unsurprising idea that it could have come from aliens, people were particularly uneasy about its shape. One resident explained, it is a triangle that we often see in the documentaries about Freemasons or the Illuminati. Really? Even in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they're watching these weird-ass documentaries or maybe even listening to this podcast right now. If so, I love you all. Please don't destroy me like you did the monolith. But they're afraid of the Illuminati? Well, that uh, went to a fever pitch, and the group of people descended upon the piece, pelting it with stones. They tore it open in a frenzy and ultimately set it on fire. They said that even though the monolith was most certainly a work of well-meaning pranksters, the mayor indicated that the city plans to have the metal tested, possibly to quell any lingering fears that the piece was a product of extraterrestrials. Yeah, man, don't, don't mess with the Congo. When, if you're a monolith, don't go to the Congo. Okay, next up in paranormal news, another story about uh, the Pentagon admitting testing wreckage from UFO crashes, just like the other one. I don't, I'm not going to go deep, deep into it. But basically, they're saying a stunning admission by the U.S. government that it possesses UFO debris that was recently made in response to Freedom of Information Acts. Yep, two stories, not kind of back-to-back, but two stories in a row that the government, the American government admits, yep, we have UFO debris. All right, and up next, paranormal news. What flies in the air, zips through the ocean, and splits in two? This isn't some kind of weird, like, highlights puzzle or something. I'm not trying to, you know give you some really weird riddle or anything. This is actually the, uh, the headline of this story. Well, scientifically investigating the Aquadilla UFO incident. They said, what kind of aircraft can travel not only through the atmosphere, but also through waters at high speed? Well, scientists who've analyzed thermal images of the flying objects rep- uh, recorded in Puerto Rico are trying to figure out exactly that. A team of analysts working in the SCU, that's the Scientific, scientific Coalition Coalition for UAP Studies, an unidentified aerial phenomena, a private group of scientists, military analysts, and investigators produced a report analyzing that Puerto Rican incident that happened, what, uh, 2013? Yeah, in 2013. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a UFO that was uh, seen over the Aquadilla, Aquadilla Airport in Puerto Rico in April of 2013. I've talked about it in the past. It's a really bizarre thermal imaging video of this thing over the airport. And they said they tried to pass it up to the food chain to figure out uh, like, hey, Homeland Security, hey, White House, hey, whoever, what is this? They also attempted to go up to the Air Force Intelligence and boom, they got blocked every step of the way. So the research showed the pilots were told these agencies don't do anything with UFOs. Sorry, it's not happening. The pilots wanted the video to be scientifically looked at not UFO-related, because again, the stigma that goes along with UFOs, we put a team together, 
we did that. We did just that. And you know what? Um, you know what we saw? Well, they said there is nothing known that can do what they saw. They said they spent two years analyzing 7,027 frames recorded in the three minute and 54 second video. They said there's a lot of theories out there, but nothing that they can figure out. They said that at first they thought it might've been just a mylar balloon because it can kind of explain the thermal images, but it doesn't make sense to what actually happens in the video. Then they tried to piece together other theories and basically they ended up with, we don't know what it is. What flies like that? What splits into two? Which has that color temperature or this temperature range that we're talking about? It does, a, it does things that balloons can't do. It does things that aircraft can't do. They uh, had a person reach out to a FLIR technician and he took uh, pictures of a Mylar balloon and said it's very similar, but it's not the same. They, uh, let me, let me skip ahead. They said the conclusion, the object witnessed by CB, CBP and tower personnel and recorded on the CBP, Stitch, it's cool, buddy. Uh, thermal imaging system is of unknown origin. There is no explanation for an object capable of traveling underwater over 90 miles per hour with minimal impact as it enters the water through the air at 120 miles per hour at low altitude through a residential area without navigational lights and finally to be able to be capable of splitting into two separate objects. No known bird, balloon, aircraft, or drone have that capability. That's cool. They independently researched it on their own and came up with, yep, we don't know what the hell it is. All righty, this next one, this next one I was going to do an episode about, but I think I'm just going to do it here. If I decide to do an episode later, I'll just, you know, refer back to it. It's a very interesting thing that just came to light, a report that just came to light, that lucid dreamers can hear and answer questions while still asleep. They say it's like communicating with an astronaut on another world. Scientists have successfully, successfully talked to a sleeping person in real time by invading their dreams. The researchers say it's like trying to communicate with an astronaut, blah, blah, blah. They, can, uh, they say that dreamers can follow instructions, solve simple math problems, and answer yes-no questions without ever waking up. Now, there is uh, four experiments uh, by the journal Current Biology. The researchers communicated directly with sleeping participants by asking them questions and having them respond with eye or facial movements during lucid dreams. When people are, a minimum, are at minimum aware that they are dreaming, that's, oh, they're trying to explain what lucid dreams is. Lucid dreams are when people are aware, a minimum aware that they're dreaming and they can control what happens in their dreams. You might expect that if you were to try to communicate with somebody who was asleep, they just wouldn't answer. Well, they didn't believe it, but this person answered, not this person, these people answered, responded their questions from their dream. They say that scientists still fully don't understand why we dream. Studying dreams is very difficult because people often forget or distort details after waking up. That's in part because the brain doesn't form many new memories while sleeping and has a limited capacity to accurately store information after the dream has ended. So they said, well, let's talk to them while they're dreaming. They found some people that were very good at lucid dreaming, and as such, they, they formed a, a sort of two-way communication. Um, this story continues on 
ad nauseum. Like it's a very, very scientifically worded story about it. It's very interesting. But they said that some, I'm going to skip ahead to the end, some footage from the lucid dreaming experiments was captured for an online Nova PBS documentary called Dream Hackers, Bridge to Your Hidden Brain, which is available to watch on YouTube from February 18th. So it just came out. Oh, perfectly. I have to check on that. Like I said, I'm going to go deeper into it because I've been kind of wanting to do a dream episode, not an episode where people can call in and talk about their dreams because there's nothing more boring to me than listening to somebody else talk about their dreams their regular dreams, but I want to talk to the people that can lucid dream, that can um, astral project while they're sleeping, that can talk to the dead while they're dreaming. That's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. And so uh, I thought I saw this story and I thought, oh, well, that'd be a good kickoff point for the episode. But like I said, I don't know if I want to do a full episode on lucid dreaming. I'd rather do the astral projection in the talking to the dead or knowing what is happening elsewhere in the world while they're sleeping. That's the stuff. That's the stuff that I want. All righty, up next in paranormal news, what is behind the U.S. Navy's UFO fusion energy patent? This is an interesting one. So the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, NAWCAD, filed a patent for a plasma compression fusion device in 2019. They said that uh, if it's real, this is a giant breakthrough. According to the patent application, the miniature device could contain and sustain fusion reactions capable of generating power in the gigawatt to terawatt range or more. To give you an idea, a large coal plant or mid-sized nuclear plant uh, produces about one to two gigawatts. But they're saying this little tiny device has the ability to produce way more energy than that. So they're going on to say that the fusion device is amongst a handful of outlandish technologies dubbed the UFO patents that have in some shape or form been pursued by the U.S. Navy. If these things are real, this is yet more proof. I mean, again, they're being dubbed the UFO patents. Everything in these patents seem to indicate an extraterrestrial intelligence, seem to indicate that... They don't come from this earth. Again, absolutely astounding. These kind of hints and these kind of things are the disclosure that's coming. Alrighty. Uh, I think I got like one. I have one more left. Let's do one more and we'll get on with the show. Finally in paranormal news, Nicaragua, (laughs) Nicaragua, Nicaragua creates Ministry of Extraterrestrial Space Affairs. That's right. Even Nicaragua has gotten into having a ministry for extraterrestrial space affairs. They said it's the moon or other celestial bodies. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. It's the extraterrestrial space affairs, the moon or other celestial bodies, which is drawing reaction on social media. The agency was approved by 76 legislators Wednesday in the country's Congress, which is dumb. It'll be under the control of the army, which has no space program. The law says that the ministry will promote the development of space activities with the aim of broadening the country's uh, capacities in the field of education, industry, science, and technology. That's about it. I'm not going to go too deep. It goes really deep into how much it costs and what it's going to potentially do, but uh, you get the idea. Even Nicaragua is in on, let's, hey, let's talk about having something to do with the connection with UFOs and extraterrestrials because we're getting closer to disclosure. 
Alrighty, that about does it for paranormal news. Let's wrap that up. Before I get into tonight's episode, though, I want to talk about something that I didn't even expect to have happen. I wanted to do on um, this past Friday, a couple of days ago, I wanted to do something like a Fan Friday where you guys could promote the stuff that you guys are doing on Facebook because I think it's really cool. I have so many talented fans that I want you guys to be able to promote your stuff. And I said to kick it off, I want to talk about this one thing that I, I've, I've seen in real life. I've seen it online. It's amazing art. It's jewelry by this guy named Jeff. He's actually one of the patrons. He's a very cool guy. He's, on, he's got an Etsy store. It's etsy.com slash Briar and the Rose. I've talked about it before on there. Please go and check him out. Etsy.com, Briar and the Rose. He's not paying me for this advertisement. I just want to promote the fans. But... I posted it on Facebook. Hey, hey, check this out. And he said, oh, you know what? Hey, that's cool. Hey, hey, Paramaniacs. If you use the code don't shoot Bigfoot on Etsy.com slash Briar and the Rose. I forget if he said it for a couple weeks, whatever, but go now. Go as quickly as you can. He'll give you a discount on his on his jewelry. Like I said, it is the most fascinating, beautiful, unusual jewelry. And I say that in the using the term unusual in the best way possible. It is beautiful jewelry. So here is a free ad for Briar and the Rose. Etsy.com slash Briar and the Rose. You paramaniacs, just use the code don't shoot Bigfoot. And a discount will be applied at checkout. I think that's really cool. I want to start promoting other um Small businesses like this, I really think that we all need to promote each other. We all need to help each other. We all need to step up and say, hey, you know what? This is what I do, and I'm very proud of it. Let me know. Put it up on Facebook. Put it up on the fan base page. I want to start doing this on, you know, every Friday, every time I can remember. I want to promote you guys because you guys promote me in this show, and I can't thank you enough, and it's grown beyond my wildest imagination. So why not promote you guys? Alrighty, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with the story at hand. We are back. Alrighty, let's get right into this story, uh, into this episode. It's been like 30 minutes. I still haven't actually gotten to the episode itself. We're back. Let's talk about a couple Lesser-known, bizarre UFO and alien encounters. You always hear about the big ones, the Roswells, the Rendlesham Forests, though, you know, you pick your UFO story of choice. But there are a ton of lesser-known ones, still famous, still out there. You look them up, you can find tons of information about them, but... Lesser known to the community, if you will, the UFO community, the paranormal almanac community. So, let's start with this one. Now, this first one comes from Finland. So, if you're playing that fan favorite game, take a drink every time Kurt says a place's name wrong or a person's name wrong, well, buckle up, baby. This is going to be a rough one for you. You're going to be drunk in minutes. I mean, sheer minutes of this story. For example, this one comes from February 2nd, 1971 in Kusamo, going towards Ulo, which is a region, as you all know, near Kiminski, Finland. Yep, 
guarantee I got none of those right. Well, this is where two women, still going to get this wrong, Sanika Kutinen and Mrs. Maninen, Maninen, sure, why not? Maninen, doesn't matter. They don't give her a first name. I couldn't find her first name anywhere, which I think is really kind of shitty. Unless she said like, hey, don't don't use my first name. This, this story is weird as shit as well. Please don't tell people that who I am. You can use my last name, but don't ever give my first name. So Sanika and Mrs. Maninen, well, they were driving. They were out driving. And as they were heading towards Ulu, sure, why not? O-U-L-U in Finland, they saw a strange light suddenly appear behind their car. As they were watching it, the light sped up and now was going the same speed as them to the left of the road. Then it passed right over their car. Sanika, who was driving, said, the moment the light went overhead, her ears either plugged up or she went deaf. Now, depending on where you get your info, it seems to me like the pressure built up and she couldn't hear for a couple seconds. So the light takes off ahead of them down the road. It went into a field clearing and the women were like, what the hell was that? So they slowed down and they said that uh, just ahead of them on the side of the road where the UFO or the light just went stood a helmeted being about three feet tall. Um, if you play that freaking game, oh crap, what is that game? Um, oh, a sus game. The one where everybody talks about like, oh, amongst Among Us. If you play Among Us, if you know what that game is, the description of the creature looks a lot like those little avatars of the players. You know what I mean? The, they got a helmet. They got a... It doesn't matter. Hold on. I'll just tell you about it. All righty. So they said that uh, the uh, there was a helmeted being. He was about three feet tall. It was in a greenish brown flight suit. That's not even the weirdest part, though. It started to hop across the road in front of them in a series of small hops. Now, Seneca rightfully hit the gas and went, nope, that thing is sus, and took off. So, story over, right? Nope. Three days later, on February 5th, two lumberjacks, um, let's see, they were the two lumberjacks, um, 21-year-old Petter Arianta and 18-year-old Esco Sneck saw the same thing. Oh, what happened to my story? This got all screwed up. Hold on a second. Uh, let's see. Boom, 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 boom. Somehow this got all com- discombobulated. One second. I apologize. Oh, yeah. The beginning of my story disappeared. That's interesting. All righty. So um, there's, there's two lumberjacks named Peter and Esco. It said it was about 3 p.m. It was overcast. They were in the forest near the village of Kanganskila in Kenula. Yep, still in Finland. So they're wrapping up their day of cutting down trees, basically. I can't find this part of the story, but I know it. So I'm just going to kind of tell you it off the top of my head. So they're uh, they're wrapping up their day. They're cutting down trees. Um, Esco was still kind of still finishing up. Peter, Peter, however you say his name, he was done, and he noticed this odd, like, metallic object hovering at treetop level. 
just by just near them, like um, I don't know, like sixty feet away or something. Now he described it as being saucer shaped, about fifteen feet long. At the bottom of the UFO, there were four approximately six foot long, thin landing legs with round pads at the end of them. And I thought that was kind of interesting because a lot of the UFOs in the 60s and 70s had that same kind of landing leg pattern, these really long, skinny legs, saucer-shaped body, and then round pads that, you know, the landing pads on the end of them. So I thought that was really interesting that even in Finland, away from where, like, South Africa, where one of them were seen, and America, where they were seen, that it was seen here as well. Now, um... Now, Petter, Peter, it says Petter, it's P-E-T-T-E-R. I don't know if that's just a weird way of spelling Peter, so I'm just going to continue calling him Peter, and I apologize if that's incorrect. Take a drink. Uh, Peter was watching the, the UFO slowly descend, and a circular portal opened at the base of the UFO, and as it got closer to the ground, it was about 50 feet from them. That's when um, Esco, who was still finishing up, hadn't really noticed it, looked around and went like, what the hell? Because Petter, Peter said that a helmeted, green, flight-suited dude, little tiny dude, about three feet tall, came out of the UFO, floated down to the ground. He said that the helmet was a faceplate, like an old-timey scuba diver kind of a thing would wear. And Esco was like, oh, crap, yep, I see it too. He said they're wearing this greenish-brown flight-suity thing, really kind of puffy, with mitten-like gloves, and they noticed it didn't really walk when it got to the ground. It more like floated, hopped on top of the snow, never sinking into it again. Kind of like a diver in the water, they said, or like an astronaut on the moon. You know how they kind of like bounce, bounce, bounce? Well, it was hop, floating, bouncing, whatever you want to call it, towards them when Peter sparked up his chainsaw again and started to walk towards the alien. He said that they were now less than 30 feet apart when the alien was like, whoa, what the F, dude? And seemed to be startled and started hop floating back to the UFO. And Esco was like, uh, yeah, this is when Peter started running full speed with his chainsaw roaring towards the little alien dude. Esco said that he noticed three more beings inside the UFO looking out three porthole windows watching Peter chase the alien. Now, Peter said... When um, what I would call the poor frightened alien was about nine feet from him, or nine feet from the UFO, I should say. When he was about, this little tiny scared alien that's hop bouncing away was about nine feet from the UFO. It seemed to start floating up towards the bottom hatch. Freaking Peter said, like, nope, dude, not happening. Jumped up and grabbed it by the right boot with his right hand. Peter said he immediately felt a flash of pain because the material burnt his hand like a, like a hot iron burn, you know? And now, depending on where you get your info, some reports state that the burns on his hand were still visible two months later. But I can't find any photos of the burns, any photos of the guys even, to be honest with you, um, or any kind of corroborative evidence that that's the case. But anyhow, back to the action. So Peter lets go of the boot in pain. The alien glides up into the UFO, which starts humming or buzzing, and it started to take off until the hatch was completely closed. Then the UFO took off, you know, like a UFO. It was, it was gone. And Esco said, look, there was no exhaust, no smell, no nothing when that UFO took off. But 
Both men said they felt disoriented or stunned after the UFO left and for about an hour afterwards. Now, I will say for you skeptics, there are a few reports that this lumberjack part of the story was all a hoax after some local DJ heard about the two women's tales of the hopping alien in the area. But there's some problems with that. First of all, I can't prove the Lumberjacks knew the DJ or fake the story. I can't even find the DJ's name that supposedly faked this story that the hoax came from. But from everything I could find, the women never went public with their report until after hearing the Lumberjacks report. Then they came forward. So, sorry skeptics, that seems to be fake. The DJ faked this whole thing and hired two guys to say they were lumberjacks so they could have a good story to tell on air. Seems to be fake. And again, I can't find any recordings of them being on the radio and some DJ, you know, disc jockey dudes like, hey, so I heard you saw a hopping alien and you chased him with the chainsaw. Nope. Can't find any proof of any of that. Now, there is a lot of crap, obviously, like with every story I research. There's a lot of BS out there. There's a lot of sites that say the two lumberjacks were left mute and frozen for hours after the incident. But, no. From everything I can find, they were just disoriented and scared because, obviously, that's what would they would be after that. I mean, I would be disoriented and scared for days after it, let alone an hour or two. But like I said, obviously, I can't verify either story but I can say from everything I found, it doesn't seem like the women knew the lumberjacks at all. Neither group has ever admitted it was a hoax. No DJ came forward that I can find to say that he paid them or that it was a fake that for, for ratings or any of that crap. Seems very interesting, though. Very bizarre one that I really hadn't heard. I heard small pieces of it, but I didn't know the, how connected and how close these stories were to each other. So very bizarre. Okay, from there, hold on, let me put a blanket over Stitch so he can relax a little bit. There we go. From there, let's move on to one that, uh, it's a UFO case called the Zenfreda case. This one's got a lot, and I mean, even more than the last story, a ton of, of BS surrounding it. Trying to figure out what really happened is very difficult. There's books that are written about this one case specifically. So it's really difficult. I think, I'm just going to admit it right at the beginning. I think I weeded out most of the BS, but there's still a lot of bizarre crap to this one. So this is the best I could do about the Zenfreda case. This one happened on December 6th and 7th in 1978. Actually, it happens a whole lot more than that, but it started around the December 6th and 7th. It happens in Genoa, Italy. Now, before I get to Pierre's and Freda's story, let me start by saying this. There were 52 people that saw, reported, called the police, came forward just after it when they heard about the, the, the news story, all about this incident, this area, from all around the town. So this one has a lot of eyewitnesses, a ton. They said they saw a UFO 
on those nights. So keep that in mind. With all the craziness I'm about to say, it's not just Pierre. A ton of people corroborated his encounters. Little, little spoiler for you. All righty, on to Pierre. He was 26 years old. He was, a, he was a security guard. He was out on a routine patrol in the village of Torguila. Doesn't matter. Torguila? Torguila. Torguila. I don't know. Torguila. Sure, why not? And as he approached a client's uninhabited country house known as the Our Home in English, that's what they named the house. I don't, uh, you know, I don't speak Italian, but it's called Our Home. Um, he notices that, um, hey, there's something going on. I'm, you know, he's out there on patrol. He's keeping an eye on these houses. He notices there's something seemed to be going on at this house. Right then, his patrol car, which was a Fiat uh, 126 or 127, depending where you get your info, stopped dead. He said it was then that he noticed four strange lights moving about in the garden of the house. So he forgets about his car dying, basically. And for a second, he thinks, hey, there's burglars in that house, or at least there seems to be. There's four lights, something's going on. So he said he got out of his car with his flashlight and his gun and started to walk towards the back of the house. So as he's slowly, silently, you know, walking around the house looking for the, the, the burglars or whatever, he gets around to the back of the house, and he says it's then that he, feel, he felt someone touch him on his shoulder from behind. He spins around, gun drawn, and sees, well, obviously it's going to be an alien. This whole episode is about UFO and aliens. He sees an alien. He described it as an enormous, green, ugly, and frightful creature with undulating skin, no less than 10 feet tall. So, rightfully so, he freaks out and runs away. Had this been in America, he would have unloaded his gun into it, but nope, he freaks out, he runs away. He said, there's a huge beam of light on him from behind him. So he looks back as he's running, and he sees a triangular UFO rising up from behind the house, and it starts moving towards him. He said it was bigger than the house him that by, bigger than the house itself, and it produced a hissing sound with intense heat coming from it that he could feel on his back as he's running away immediately as it rose up. Now he makes it back to his car and he calls it in. The radio operator named Carlo Toccolino said it was about 12.15 a.m. when he received the call. He said Pierre was speaking fast and sounded scared. Pierre kept saying, my God, are they ugly? And, you know, he, what were these creatures? He kept, like, freaking out, going, like, what the hell? What are these things? What are these things? So Carlos says, uh, he asked him if they were human, and Pierre said he needed assistance. He said, no, they aren't men. They aren't men. And then the radio went dead. So Carlo immediately called the chief of the security services, Lieutenant uh, Giovanni Casibi, Casiba. And an hour later, about 1.15 a.m., Giovanni and a couple of other patrol guards, Walter Loria and uh, Raimondo Masia, go to the house. They found his car. They find Pierre's car. And they see Pierre in the front of the house lying on the ground. Now, as they get close to him, Pierre jumps up, gun drawn on them. They said he was completely disoriented. He did not respond when they told him to, hey, you're okay, lower your gun, like repeatedly, like put your gun down, we're, we're cool, it's us, we're fine, we're not 
you know, aliens. They said he was so disoriented, they actually tackled him and took his gun away from him. Immediately when they tackled him, all three men noticed his clothes were insanely hot, even though it was a cold night. As one of them looked after Pierre, the other one started to check out the back of the house to see, you know, what had been going on. They knew that's where Pierre had been. They said they got around the back of the house and found really large, heavy, horseshoe-shaped prints in the frost about nine feet apart. Not like horseshoes like like um, horses or the devil had walked back there, but like horseshoe-shaped landing prints from the from a, like something had landed in the back of the yard. So they take Pierre back to the guard station and had him tell everything he could remember. His boss said, I can state with certainty that he is a clear-thinking man with no strange fantasies in his head. Remember that. He goes on to say, when we went to investigate the scene the next day, he almost didn't want to come. He was so scared. Only something exceptional could have frightened him so. All right, so they go back. During the investigation, they discover that 52 people nearby saw a bright glare in the direction of the country house at the exact same time that Pierre reported seeing it ascending. Now, the story makes the paper. Everybody starts kind of making fun of him because that's what happened back then, especially with UFO reports. Um, He said he was so concerned, though, that he couldn't remember what happened between him running and when he was found, he needed help. So somebody, and it's very curious, it's not very clear who, somebody takes him to go see a hypnotherapist named Dr. Moro Moretti. Now, he is a psychotherapist and a member of the Italian Association of Medical Hypnosis, apparently. Can't confirm that. All right, you ready for this? Under hypnosis, Pierre said that he was abducted by, quote, monsters about 10 feet tall with hairy green skin, yellow triangular eyes, and red veins across the forehead, who brought him to a hot, luminous place where they interrogated him and examined him. Now, during that same um, hypnosis session, Pierre also also said that the creatures came from, quote, the third galaxy, and, quote, they want to talk with us, and they will soon return in large numbers. Now, he went on to say that the aliens didn't speak Italian to him, but used a, quote, luminous device to translate what they were saying. So, yep, we're talking about reptoid aliens using some device to make it so he could understand them. He said this unique device, apparatus, whatever you want to call it, fit over their mouths, enabled them to breathe breathe Earth's air. And he said that the odd device, he said, why don't you have a mouth? You only get these irons with a net, which gives out light. I have no idea what the hell that means. Why don't you have a mouth? You only got those irons with a net, which give out light. I have no idea. All righty. Three nights after the hypnosis, Pierre disappears again. This is on December 26th, 11.45 p.m. Pierre was driving inside the Bargagli Tunnel near the Scofera Pass. Sure, why not? When suddenly he loses control of his car. Now, he doesn't crash his car. He says he just can't control his car. He radios in that his Fiat turned around on its own and came out of the tunnel. He said on the radio he was trying to hit the brakes or turn the wheel but that the car just wouldn't respond and kept driving along the steep road going uphill. 
He also said on the radio that he couldn't see well because all of a sudden, just around the car, there seemed to be a very thick fog-like cloud. So about a mile later, the car came to an abrupt stop. He's still on the radio. Car comes to an abrupt stop. He said he hit his head on the steering wheel. It happened so quickly. He radios in. The car is stopped. I saw a bright light. Now I'm getting out. So dispatch immediately sends out a car to get him about 1.10 a.m. Sergeant Emmanuel Travanzoli arrived and saw Pierre in a field near the road. This sergeant said almost the same thing as last time, his, that Pierre's clothes were noticeably warm and dry even though it was raining out. The sergeant said Pierre was shaking and crying, and Pierre said, they say I must leave with them. What about my children? I don't want to. I don't want to. So the police were called to investigate this, and they start to look things over, and even though it took them a while to get to Pierre, though, they noticed the car's roof and interior, Pierre's car's roof and interior were hot, as hot as an oven. Now, they noticed large footprints all around the car, but most surprisingly, they found that Pierre's gun had been fired five times, and Pierre had no memory of firing it. All right, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the next big part of this. July 30th, 1979, Pierre was working. uh, He's back to normal, working again. He was on duty, this time on a motorcycle, in the residential area of Cuarto in Genoa. Genoa? I don't know. In Italy. So, uh, you know, it's a different area. It's a quieter area for him. And yep, you guessed it. He disappears again. This time, the other guards found him on a quiet hilltop, but no one ever saw him go up there, even though the entire area was patrolled by other security guards. Skipping ahead, he can't remember what happened, how he got there. They do hypnotherapy again. And he says this. He was lifted from the ground into the alien spaceship by a mysterious green light. That's about the only good bit in this whole hypnosis session. So, yay, he does it again. Aliens, he was abducted, right? Everybody's happy, it's good. That's the end of it. Nope. Pierre gets abducted again December 2nd, 1979, while out on patrol. Come on, man. Get a new job at this point. Something indoors with lots of people around you. This one's on you, dude. Go go work in a bowling alley or something or a pizza store. Like, come on, man. Stop driving around in the middle of the night by yourself. I don't care that you have a gun. Obviously, it does no good. Pierre, you're pissing me off, man. All right, so uh, he gets abducted December 2nd, 1979. They send the guards out to look for him. But as the guards get close to where he was last heard from, Four guards radio in that they see, quote, a large UFO in the sky, in the clouds, depending where you get your info. Most of it says they see a bright light coming from the clouds and shined, shone, whatever, onto the guards themselves. And one guard opens fire on the cloud, the light cloud. The UFO or cloud, depending where you get info, whatever you want to call it. Uh, turned off the light, and it flew away. Now, grain of salt time, but some sites say one of those guards was so freaked out by the incident, one of those four guards was so freaked out by the incident that he committed suicide. 
I hope that's not true. God, I hope that's not true, but I can't prove it either way. So um, Pierre does hypnotherapy again, and he says that night he heard someone calling him from a shadow, and he walked towards the voice. The voice ordered him to drive into a small cloud where he was taken aboard a UFO. Now, Pierre described the man who gave him the orders inside the UFO was a bit taller than himself with a bald, egg-shaped head dressed in a checkered suit that included something uh, something made of metal. No, sorry, sorry. Something made of steel in place of a shirt. So this tall, bald, egg-shaped dude, checkered suit, something steel instead of a shirt, was walking around with giant aliens in this huge UFO, and Pierre said he saw transparent cylinders filled with a strange blue liquid while he was being given a tour, basically, of the UFO. Pierre said that one of these blue transparent cylinders even had a frog-shaped body in it that the tall aliens called, quote, an enemy of ours from another planet. Now, in two more cylinders were preserved a big bird. That's right, a big bird. Now, this is Kurt here. I assume that Pierre doesn't mean big bird from Sesame Street. He just meant there was a big bird. But, you know, I hope it wasn't big bird. Anyhow, um, he goes to another cylinder, and there's some human-looking body in this cylinder, and Pierre says it was a caveman. So Pierre then said to the aliens, giving him a tour, where have you been, and what do you want to do in Spain? I thought it was Italy. I'm weird why he said Spain. Maybe it's maybe it's Spain, and that's one of these things that's just not right about this, but everything else is Genoa, Italy. But Pierre says, where have you been? What do you want to do in Spain? Why? But altogether, that will scare people without explaining what the hell the other part of that conversation was at all. Very frustrating. But uh, they then said that they wanted to give Piero something. It's a transparent sphere with a pyramid inside it with had like uh, electricity sparking inside it. You know, those like plasma balls. He said it kind of looked like that. So it's a transparent sphere with a pyramid inside it and that kind of like plasma shit going around it. Now they explained that with this, it was possible to understand who they were and how they lived. Pierre said he didn't want it, said to leave him alone but they told him that he was going to, they were going to give him the sphere and he has to give the sphere to, guess who, guess who Pierre has to give the sphere to? I'll give you a second to guess. Nope, not Big Bird. Take a guess. The alien said Pierre have to give the sphere to, nope, not him either. Come on, at least do an educated guess. Give up? All right. The alien said, Pierre, take the sphere to Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Yep. Project Blue Book's own Dr. J. Allen Hynek. It's been a few episodes since we've heard that name, huh? Now, here's where it gets murky again. Most sites say Pierre didn't take the spear, but later on in every version, he'll talk about having the spear and it's hidden somewhere. So again, it's very murky what happened with the spear. Uh, it doesn't seem like it ever gotten to it ever got to Dr. J. Allen Hynek or anything like that. But 
All right, we're getting a little repetitious now. Pierre's abducted again on February 14th, 1980. But on this one, a witness nearby said he saw a bright light shaped like a football balloon kind of thing right where they found Pierre. So, again, another independent eyewitness to this stuff. Pierre goes under again, but this time, under hypnosis again, but this time, he starts speaking a bizarre, unknown language. Damn it, I want to find audio of this. I couldn't, though. But here is a transcription. Okay. Aliens, Kurt here. If I say anything offensive, it's not me. I'm just reading what Pierre said. I'm going to read you the transcription now. So, we cool. No need to take me. Don't give me a spear with the pyramid for Dr. J. Allen Hynek's kid or anything. Alrighty. Here we go, everybody. The best that I can do, the transcription of what Pierre said under hypnosis. <clears throat> Ready? Ichi snawa sinela isnige ilsilai. Go gay te snow exigay. See or sigh. Nis chi ixi kai snu chisnawag the ax pisnow kepna tesaday. I'm not saying it again. All right. Then Pierre's voice changes to a really guttural voice and he said, you can't work out anything in a case like this. To believe or not to believe doesn't mean anything. Each thing in its own time. All right. Getting to the end of it. Don't worry. I know it's gotten really batshit crazy, but um, August 13th, 1980, he was abducted again. Afterwards... Oh, actually, this one, they were actually watching him. So they say that he, you know, seems to kind of disappear for a second. They go immediately to check on him. They're like, uh-uh, we're not waiting for the aliens this time. He's getting weirder every time. So they get to him supposedly before the aliens get to him. Well, they said he seems to be coming unglued. And um, there was no UFO scene when they got to him. He was kind of crazy. Went under hypnosis again, and this time he said, Question with negative answer, Tixel? That's right. The only thing he would say, Question with negative answer, Tixel? I have no idea what that means. <sighs> Alrighty, so that was his last hypnosis or abduction. Now here's where, like again, I remember I said a minute ago it got kind of murky. Pierre says he does have the sphere, but it's hidden in the hills of Genoa, or Genoa in Italy, until he's told to get it. Yep. So, uh, yeah. There you have it. That, as far as I can tell, is the correct account of what happened to Pierre Zanfreda. The Zanfretta alien abduction story. There is so much more that I could debunk. I was like, well, that's not true. I couldn't find it on this one. 
there's some people that quote him differently, but they all seem to have that same stupid language and the question with negative answer tixel part the same. So I think as best I could in the time it took me to investigate it and uh, get rid of the crap and figure out what's real and what's not, I think this is the best account of the Zenfreda alien abduction story, at least that I can do. So make of that what you will, or I guess I should say, question with negative answer, Tixel. <sighs> Man, see, right? That one has a lot to it. And if it wasn't for the eyewitness weirdnesses, like the eyewitness seeing everything constantly on every one of those, I'd write this one off as a dude slowly losing his mind. But a bunch of people, bunch of people, saw stuff every damn time that Pierre disappeared. So I can't just write it off as Pierre's just being crazy. Something happened. People saw weird shit when that something happened. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? We'll get back to the other one in a second. But what do you guys think of the Zenfreda alien abduction story? It's it's bonkers, right? Like, if this guy really has this spear with a pyramid inside of blah, 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 he has it. And I get that he's trying to wait for them to tell him what to do with it. But come on, dude. Here is proof that everything that happened to you happened to you. Here is proof of alien life that you seem to be scared of, Pierre, that you seem to be worried about, that you shot at at least five bullets at. So here's your proof, man. Come out and say, look, these things are real. Here's the proof. Take it. Take a look for yourself. Investigate it yourself. Yep, it's not from this earth. See, I told you. We got to protect ourselves from some really tall ones who gave me that really weird message that hopefully, you know, the point of that really weird message wasn't for people like me to read it out loud again, because that would suck is if that, you know, they're, the only thing they're waiting for is somebody else to say those words and get it right. And if I do, then they're going to come down. Like, again, don't, don't abduct me, aliens. I, I was just reading what he said. It's a weird one, though, right? And the other one, equally weird. The descriptions of this thing hop floating around. The You can see drawings of it, but I can't find any official drawing saying, like, this is what the eyewitness saw, the eyewitness drew it, none of that stuff. It's not like the, you know, hey, on this photo or this drawing was done by Lumberjack, you know, Peter, Petter, whatever. So, but the drawings are, they really do look like the characters in the Among Us game, the little video game. Really freaking weird one though, right? Well, um, yeah, I guess that about does it for this episode. Um, please check out uh, Briar and the Rose, Etsy.com slash Briar and the Rose. Amazing jewelry. Again, I'm not getting paid to say this. I just want to support my listeners. If you guys make something equally cool, let me know. I'd like to support you guys as well. At the very least, I like to put it out onto the Facebook page. Um, there, if you haven't had a chance to yet, I would still really like every listener out there to give me the top five or top 10 haunted locations around where you live. 
You can email it to me at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. You can put it at the Facebook page. You can put it at the Facebook fan page. However you want to get it to me. I just think it would be a really, really cool thing to send out a complete compendium online of Paranormal Almanac listener guides to haunted locations. I think it'd be really cool. So if you have the ability to do so, please do so. Um, Next week is going to be, actually the end of this week, technically, this Saturday coming up, what is that, the 27th or whatever? Let's see, it is, yeah, Saturday the 27th is going to be another live bonus quarantine episode. So if you want to check in on those, they're always fun. Everybody that's in the chat is a blast. It's a lot of good times. But this one actually has a theme, fingers crossed. If I get enough callers or people emailing in their stories, it'll have a theme. And the theme is glitches in the matrix or the Mandela effect. Either one of those. If you have a personal encounter with a glitch in the matrix or a personal encounter with the Mandela effect, I want to hear about it now as quick as you can. Again, email me, paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Message me on Facebook. Message me on the Facebook fan page, wherever you can do it. I think it'd be a lot of fun to do an entire bonus quarantine episode all about the glitches in the matrix Mandela effect. I think it'd be really cool. So... That's your homework for this week, I guess. All righty. With that, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Zandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Los Gesturs Navid again, the Unish Selk.